0: On the Job
1: with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach.
2: And my name is Sally Rugg. Thanks for being here, everybody.
1: Hey Sally, good to catch up again. How's your week been?
2: It's been the same. It's been the same. It's always <laughs> it's always the same, isn't it, at the moment? Um, yeah, it's good. What have I got to report about the cats? Um, one of the cats had her, one of her teeth removed and her mood has improved significantly, which is great. And now she smiles kind of with like, she's got this sort of like funny, toothy smile. Um, anyway, so that's the highlight of my life at the moment.
1: <laughs> so... Where do you take your cat? Is there a cat dentist? Is there like this sort of like niche specialty within veterinary uh, services that does cat
2: tea? I mean, we should really have a, a, a vet to come on the job um, and to talk us through this. Potentially yes. some other topical points of discussion within the public pertaining to vet Veterinary treatments. No, she just got her tooth removed at her normal vet.
1: I'd like to think that there's a there is a cat dentist because I just think that would be like a in terms of niche specialties that'd be right up there.
2: How's your week been, Francis? My week's been
1: okay though. Looking at the news today and sort of confirming what I've, I've felt's been going on, and we'll talk about this in a moment with our next guest about the the unequal burden of the pandemic as it stands because working people in uh, from diverse backgrounds in, in suburbs across Australia are carrying the burden of this pandemic uh, significantly. And there's a report from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare uh, using ABS data uh, which points out that, uh, you know, people in working class communities and poorer suburbs are almost four times as likely to be exposed to uh, COVID-19 and live with the consequences of it. It really does drive home that point. And that's been exacerbated uh, in recent days by reports and, and anecdotal stuff from, from my hometown, my home suburb, of uh, Broadmeadows, in the city of Hume in Melbourne's northern suburbs, where it has become the centre of the, the pandemic in this part of the world. Um, my parents still live there uh, and uh, they tell me about people that they know that have now got the, uh, the condition... And just reading and hearing about just how difficult it's been for the people in the city of Hume in suburbs like Roxborough Park and Broadmeadows and and elsewhere. Rich diversity of communities out there where language and cultural issues have become uh, a challenge in terms of getting people to um, mobilise to be vaccinated. Uh, the outreach and services have been really stretched the availability of appropriate vaccines is still a big issue there and I really feel for for my hometown and my community at the moment because uh, it just outlines to me Sally that when I think about like you and I've talked about this gee lovely sunny Saturday afternoon Sunday afternoon coming up I'd love to be at the pub or in a beer garden somewhere and I can't be uh, that I've just got to check myself a little bit and when I talk to mum and dad and hear what's going on in their community that, you know, we're doing it tough, but there are some people are doing it a hell of a lot tougher.
2: Yeah, that's right. And we've got a, a brilliant guest lined up for the pod today to tell us a little bit more about that, don't we?
1: We do indeed. So why don't we jump right into it?
0: Run, 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 run,
1: on the Job, the podcast about making your working life better. Sally, a lot of talk at the moment about hospitals and how hospitals are going to cope and how healthcare is going to cope when we hit some magical point where we're going to try and open up again and so-called live with COVID. Uh, and then it's going to fall back on our healthcare system to try and cope with the consequences of that. And it is a leap into the great unknown, isn't it?
2: It is. And all of us, everybody in the community re- relies on hospitals. Even even those of us who, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to sound nihilistic here, but None of us know when we will need to call on a hospital for ourselves or for a loved one. And so the capacity of um, not only the, you know, the buildings themselves, but the the workers within the hospital walls doesn't just matter to COVID, uh, you know, patients who have COVID and um, particularly frail and vulnerable COVID patients. That matters to everybody.
1: It certainly does. And at the moment, it is our healthcare workers, our frontline workers, which who are holding back the tide of disaster in our hospitals and in our GP surgeries and everywhere that people are presenting with issues when it comes to COVID-19. In Sydney's southwestern, western suburbs, it is very much the case. And so today on the pod, we're going to talk about healthcare workers and the reality of dealing with COVID as it stands and what that might look like in the future. And Stephen Zorgis joins us. Stephen is a registered nurse working in emergency departments in the West and Southwest of Sydney, and he's been good enough to be uh, on the job with us today. Hey, Stephen, how you going, mate?
3: What's happening, guys? Happy to be here.
1: Well, well, let's start with you. I'd like to find out because it's a long haul. It's been a long haul for all of you folks working in healthcare. How are you doing? How are you holding up at the moment?
3: I'm surrounded by amazing people. Uh, nursing uh, attracts some of the most amazing people that you'll ever meet, but um, I'd be lying to you if everything if I said that everything was A-OK, uh, many of us are struggling physically, emotionally. The hours are long. Uh, many of us are pulling a lot of overtime. We're physically exhausted. And then you compile that with the emotional cost that comes with a job like this. Uh, under normal circumstances, it's, it's, it's enough to break an average person, but um, then you add the complexities of COVID and uh, things are getting tough, man. Things are getting real around here.
2: And can you tell us some of those those complexities, right? Like we, we hear a few bits of pieces for those of us who follow, you know, these stories quite closely about PPE and about having to be more than a nurse to a lot of people who are in the hospital by themselves. Can you talk us through what are some particular complexities that have come with COVID patients?
3: Absolutely. So um, uh, one of the complexities that has come about with um, with uh, this latest wave of COVID is that, uh, family, friends, carers, uh, it's getting more and more difficult for them to support their family in hospital while they are in hospital, particularly in the area where I work. So, Sydney Southwest, we have a large ethnic community, non English speaking background. Their English can be very limited. And if you don't have a nurse or a doctor who speaks their language on shift, you somehow still have to deliver gold standard care. And this person has to completely put their trust in you. Something that I sympathise quite a bit because I remember when uh, my mum migrated here to Australia, um, I can only imagine how difficult it was to give birth to three kids and not speak a lick of English. And you show up to this hospital to give birth to a baby and all of a sudden people are doing all this stuff around you and no one... Uh, You you have a very limited understanding of what's going on and there weren't a lot of Greek speaking individuals in healthcare at the time to be able to explain this stuff to her and uh, those issues carry on uh, into the modern day as well. So, and it goes beyond just the ethnic communities of Sydney Southwest, Uh, there's the vulnerable communities, there are children with intellectual disabilities and adults with intellectual disabilities as well who need to feel safe and have their carers around. We're also, you know, seeing people from the LGBTQIA plus community who, you know, need that support network around them at the best of times Um, and then they'll present to hospital just like anyone else and not to have that support person around you is almost like having the rug pulled out from under you and you're just treading water We're doing our best. We're stepping up. Nurses are some of the most understanding human beings you'll ever meet. But again, that just adds complexity to the already difficult and technical nature of our job. Nurses will always be the ones who will hold your hand in the middle of the night when you're scared. Uh, That's something that was happening long before this pandemic. And now, more than ever, we need these amazing human beings to step up, and they are. But again, like I said, there's an emotional toll on that.
1: What about the physical toll? I mean, you're working in a highly volatile environment with people who are often deeply distressed and concerned about whether they're going to survive or not. You're having to prepare to actually service them and provide the expertise that you have by, you know, protecting yourself so uh, thoroughly that you have to prepare with PPE and cover yourself up and be meticulous to the point of, you know, being hypervigilant. How physically exhausting is it to prepare and get ready to provide the care that you want to and need to?
3: You know, the the long hours are definitely something that, uh, it's definitely something that's very difficult. You just keep soldiering on, you just keep carrying on. PPE doesn't make things any easier. Before this pandemic, you know, you'd have nurses go hours and hours without having a toilet break because they still have to deliver care. And the only time you get to sit down is when you go to the toilet uh, at some point during your shift. Now, the fact that we have to wear these P2 or these N95 masks constantly to protect ourselves and protect the patients from COVID, the simple things like having a drink of water during your shift, it's, it's difficult. Um, I don't want to overshare, but sometimes I make it to the end of the shift and my urine is so concentrated that uh, it, it takes me by surprise. And we all know we need to drink water, right? Nurses are no exception to this. You can't condition yourself to dehydration. PPE is hot. We're wearing these – I'm sure you've seen it on TV. We're wearing these full-length yellow aprons. They don't breathe. They're they're impervious. So they don't breathe. There's no uh, place for the water vapor to escape. So you're often sweating and you're really hot underneath that PPE. And, again, back to the water point, you know, you can't drink that water because – you, you have to take off your mask you have to go all the way to another room to take off your mask you have to take off your yeah it, it having a drink something as simple as having a drink of water becomes a very very complicated exercise
2: my word that is so full-on I want to I want to ask you about um, some of the amazing things that nurses in New South Wales are organizing together to sort of call for and advocate for but I'm um, before we move to that, can you help us and the listeners understand for people who don't have COVID who are presenting to an to the emergency department, whether that's for you know a car accident or you know heart issue or you know anything that someone might normally present to an emergency department for, what's their experience like now, and and how has that changed?
3: So for the most part, the experience hasn't changed. You show up to an emergency department and you still get that gold standard care. You still get a group of, you know, vibrant, young and old, passionate individuals who want to provide you with the best possible healthcare care outcomes. Um, the biggest change uh, comes with the complexity of this care we need to separate what we call hot and cold patients. So we need to mitigate those risks. You come in with flu-like symptoms, we need to test you for COVID. I think, you know, if we use the car accident example, you know, people who are in car accidents are often in this state of shock and they're scared. They're legitimately scared. I think the best quote came from a TV series called Nurse Jackie where she describes emergency nursing as... Uh, you see people on the worst day of their lives. And that rings true for any emergency nurse. Um, You know, obviously you can't have your family, you can't have your loved ones next to you during this really vulnerable and scary time because we also have to balance protecting your family and your loved ones from this virus. Uh, We don't know who walks in through the door with COVID. I'm sure plenty of you guys have heard Uh, a lot of the talk around asymptomatic spread of this virus. So for the most part, anyone that walks into the emergency department, we need to consider infectious. Um, And that's not just dangerous for the people around them in the emergency department, that's also very dangerous for the staff too. Keep in mind that if a nurse or a doctor or a cleaner or even a midwife is exposed to COVID, uh, that's isolation for two weeks. Um, they're out of the game for two weeks because they have to isolate. And that in itself has repercussions. It's not as easy as, you know, work from home. This isn't a trade where we can work from home. Uh, We need to be hands-on patients to be able to deliver the best quality care. When a senior staff member particularly is taken out of the fight, then you have the skill mix in that hospital being diminished. You have the junior staff around them without the mentorship of that senior staff member to be able to guide them through the complexities of healthcare. And that's where it becomes really, really difficult. And it's not just the technical stuff involved in nursing too, it's that hand on the shoulder telling the junior staff that everything's gonna be A-okay. Keep in mind, these guys are new and these guys are vulnerable, just like we were when we first started out as well. They need that leadership. They need that mentorship from the more senior and more seasoned healthcare professionals to be able to get them through this.
2: I'll just gonna say, I just think nurses are the best people. Just like, just as a side note, like listening to you talk, Stephen, it's just like, yeah, you are the best of us. Nurses are are just. Um, and I don't want to use the word heroes because I think there's like a really like a really powerful point to be made that like no nurses are not heroes. They are workers, and their work should be valued and um, remunerated uh, uh, like properly and and treasured in that way. But um, so I I don't want to sort of fall into that trope. But I really do think that that you and your colleagues are incredible
3: i do appreciate it sally um but we put our scrubs on one leg at a time just like you guys you know we're 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 human beings and i often say that you know yeah i will acknowledge that the work that we do is super important and it's 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 very it's a very profound experience being a nurse um and doing it for 15 years you know I, i i understand that but mate Everyone can contribute to this world in one way or another. I'm not going to diminish the importance of the barista across the street at the hospital because guess what? I wouldn't be able to face a shift of this craziness that's going on without that barista making my morning coffee. He's just as important as any nurse that shows up to work. The stuff that you guys are doing, talking to us, listening to our stories – with your expertise in the media, don't diminish exactly what you're doing either. You're getting that message out there. You're giving a platform for someone like myself who beyond the hospital walls, I wouldn't otherwise have that platform. So yeah, don't diminish yourself by comparing it to us. We're all in the legitimately, I believe we're all in this together and not in the way that these, you know, morning breakfast personalities say it. You know, we all have something to contribute no matter how small that is. And the important thing is, is that we do so in a measured and considered way so we can, we can sustain the contribution that we all make. And we support each other in doing so as well. It's really important.
1: Damon, can I ask you about COVID itself in its extreme? Because I think there's a lot of people who abstractly know that it's a disease that can make you sick and, yeah, you might die. But there's still, I think, a disconnect for a lot of people between the reality of living with it in a critical phase and what it does to you and the consequences that it has. So for someone who's up close to it, can you give us a sense of just what happens to people when they get really sick?
3: One of the failings uh, I feel in the, the media particularly is that they continuously throw statistics at you right? You know, they say uh, the fatality rate is at about 2%. 2% doesn't sound like a very big number. But when you scale that to 25 million people in Australia, all of a sudden you've got hundreds of thousands of people dying. And the other thing that they don't spruik enough when they're talking about these statistics is that this disease is a novel virus. It's only been around for less than two years. We still don't know the morbidity of what this virus can do to a population. We don't know the long-term effects. You look at something like polio, for instance, right? Polio has been around for a very, very long time, but we know what polio can do in children. All you need to do is look at the, uh, the compromise gate that people have when they get older because they contracted polio as a child and the same thing goes for a rheumatic fever as well we know rheumatic fever has been around for a very long time and we know that they're at much higher risk of developing heart valve complications older in life you know we we know that these complications exist in these established viruses The thing about COVID is that we don't know what the future holds for COVID. Yeah, this pandemic might finish in a year, two years, however long it takes us to get, you know, the lid on the casserole. But we don't know what's going to happen in 5, 10 or even 50 years from now. As far as how sick people can get, um, we know people can get very, very sick from COVID. And uh, that's just a reality. You might meet someone who catches COVID and they're A-OK, they have very minor symptoms it's just like something it's it's like a common cold or a really mild case of the flu and the reality is that yes that occurs but i think global statistics stand at anywhere between 10 to 14 percent of people um develop severe symptoms which require hospitalization now we're often talking about ventilators, um, that there are enough ventilators and, you know, the government is of, often spruking that we have enough ventilators in New South Wales and we have enough ventilators in Australia. But no one talks about the physical and the emotional cost of putting someone on a ventilator. When you're on a ventilator, things aren't looking good. Ventilators are your Hail Mary. It's not like ventilators in the movies where, you know, the hero puts his hand around the ventilator tube, takes the tube out of his throat and then goes on to save the world. There is often a period of rehabilitation after being on a ventilator. You have to relearn how to breathe essentially, not to mention the complications that might come about from being on a ventilator itself. Now, this rehabilitation can often take months, sometimes years before you can get back to a fraction of what you were prior to being on a ventilator. Ventilators are very serious. It is is a very serious illness. It might not be a very serious illness to everyone, a lot of people. And I will say this, the majority of people will not develop symptoms severe enough to end up in hospital. But for those who do end up in hospital, mate, it's a long, long road to recovery. Uh, I had the pleasure of, um, uh, this is actually a very close friend of mine who caught COVID. And I sat down with her and I had a very long discussion with her. She was hospitalized. She had very severe symptoms. And even then she ended up developing long COVID. It took her six months before she could get back to normal. And we're not talking about someone with uh, uh, medical history. We're not talking about someone who's unhealthy. This is a young woman in her 30s who goes out every weekend and plays hockey uh, at an amateur um, athletic level. This woman is a lot fitter than anyone I've ever met. She caught COVID and it took her six months to recover from this, even though she's at the peak of her physical fitness. Mate, that's how real this virus is. That's how scary it could potentially be. The question I ask is, do you want to roll the dice? Do you want to catch COVID and see if you're going to be one of the lucky ones who develop mild symptoms and then COVID becomes a bad dream or do you want to be one of those people who end up recovering from this illness for six months or worse off ending up on a ventilator or even ending up on a machine called ECMO. Now ECMO is a lot more serious than a ventilator. Essentially a ventilator helps you breathe through a breathing tube, but ECMO, they put needles into your blood vessels and the blood is bypassed from your lungs because your lungs cannot function into a machine that pumps oxygen into the blood because your lungs can't. now, yeah, it sounds complicated and it sounds scary and that's because it is and it's really serious.
2: That is so full on. Yeah, um, thank you for that. Um, hey, I just wanted to, uh, like, I'm aware that we're chatting on and on but I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, you mentioned something then about your friend who got long COVID and she was, um, you know, at the, at the peak of health and... Um, And I think that was like really important to mention when we, uh, you know, imagine people who are getting very, very sick with this virus, um, you know, or worse, and they can be in the peak of their health. But I wanted to ask you about this phrase that we're hearing more and more in press conferences and in reporting of deaths with this disease. And that is, underlying health conditions. Like personally, I have been quite worried about how this phrase or this classification, underlying health conditions, has been included in both the death reporting and the sort of surrounding discourse of the virus, because underlying health conditions, that's a pretty broad classification, right? Uh,
3: to put it simply and to understand it, uh, underlying health conditions can mean a number of things. Uh, high blood pressure is an underlying health condition. If you take pills every day to control your blood pressure, you have a condition called hypertension and that's an underlying health condition.
2: Is that you, Francis? Um,
3: diabetes is another one. There you go. Francis, I do hope that you're having a low-sodium diet and you're taking your pills every day and you're very compliant because if you present to my emergency department, I'm going to be very frustrated if you're not.
1: <laughs> no, I'm. I've, my blood pressure's under
3: control, Stephen. It's under control. Good, good. Otherwise, you're going to cop an earful from me, okay? <laughs> We're not all Florence Nightingales. Some of us have, uh, you know, some of us have a more aggressive approach to healthcare. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, things like obesity as well. Obesity is an underlying health condition. Um, asthma. Asthma, even though it's very, very well controlled, that's an underlying health condition. Um, statist-
2: and that's me. I have asthma. Exactly. I, and it's... And it's under control at the moment, but it's taken me a really long time to get it under control with like a exploring all sorts of different medications anyway, just just by way of statistics on this on this in this conversation right now that's two-thirds of
3: us so far exactly so uh, and and exactly two-thirds of us speaking right now have an underlying health condition well two-thirds of the fatalities. Uh, that occur because of COVID are from people with underlying health conditions as well. And the statistics could be even more than that. It just depends on where you get your statistics from. And that's really, really scary. And I think the message that we all need to take home from this is that if we do have an underlying health condition, we really need to look after ourselves. You know, Sally, just as well as anyone else, that your asthma can easily be flared up by the common cold or any sort of virus. You know, you just as much as anyone else, you need to be looking after yourself, which means that you need to have the medicines that you need available to you to be able to manage your chronic condition. Uh, Blood pressure is another one too. Don't wait until you have two or three pills left in the pack before you rush around looking for a doctor to give you a script for your blood pressure medicine. Go and have a discussion with your GP and get that script refilled. And while you're there, have a discussion with your GP about non-medical interventions on how to assist those tablets to do their job. Things like Simple things like eating more vegetables, exercising regularly, simple things like that can make a world of difference. And I know exercise is a little bit difficult at the moment because, you know, our premiers like to tell us, you know, uh, 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 one hour a day within five kilometres, you can still do so much exercise with that. I think a lot of us are spending a lot of time at home. That can drive us crazy. And we have a lot more time on our hands than what we did. Now's a great time to reflect on what we can do to improve our health.
2: Yeah, I think that's a, a call for everybody, even if we don't have an underlying condition. Um, just just before we move on from this point, I think one of the things that has really upset me the most around reporting underlying health conditions as part of, you know, the, the, the data briefly reported at press conferences is firstly, because I think it can be quite misleading for people who aren't who don't have the knowledge that you do Stephen because people will think oh underlying health condition you know this person must be in their last you know the last days of their life already you know like these they're already very sick first of all that's not true at all like it's the majority of people in the country have or or perhaps it's just under I think it's 45% of people have an underlying health condition so chalking up deaths um, as somehow, you, you know, these are very, very sick people. It's not, A, it's not accurate. Like it's, it's not a useful data point to share. But the thing that upsets me even more than that is I think the emphasis on whether people have an underlying health condition sort of renders people who are elderly or disabled or chronically ill or otherwise frail as somehow more expendable it's kind of like a, a reassurance given largely by politicians saying like, you know, there were and there were, today there were 10 deaths, but they all had underlying health conditions as if as if the lives of people who are chronically ill or elderly or disabled are not just as precious as anybody else. And and for me, like, I, I think the, the context people, well, these, these people in the media are trying to give is like to minimise um, the perceived danger of a virus, of the virus. But for me, I don't understand how a virus is less dangerous if it's predominantly killing vulnerable people because those lives are just as important as anybody else. So it's just as dangerous, yeah.
3: Precisely. Precisely. You're absolutely right. I mean, um, and you can't, the the example that I gave you earlier, you know, my friend who uh, contracted COVID and had a very, very serious experience with it. She didn't have any underlying health conditions. I, I like to stress to people that a death is a death. Every single death is tragic. Whether or not the person had underlying health conditions, every single death is serious. There are a lot of young people dying from this. You've got asthma, but you have a family that loves you. And you also have, you you have a career, you're young, you have a career ahead of you. You can contribute so much to this world. You have so much life to live. You're not expendable just because you have an underlying health condition. And I think people need to kind of stop getting caught up in the binary view of these statistics and start looking at what these statistics really mean. The underlying health condition, I said two thirds of people who have passed away had underlying health conditions. Well, you know what? One in 10 people who are over the age of 75 will also die of COVID. Uh, that's a disproportionate amount uh, compared to the overall statistics when you're comparing them to people who are younger and have have better function. And let me tell you something, you'll be very hard-pressed to find a 75-year-old who doesn't have an underlying health condition. However, this person has children, this person has grandchildren who love them very much. These people contribute to society by looking after these children, these are valuable members of our society. And like I said, a death is a death, man. we gotta, we we, we got to stop getting caught up in these numbers and stop trying to interpret them. Leave the interpretations to those who understand statistics and just believe us when we say that this is a very, very serious illness. Stephen, just to finish,
1: there's a way to go in this and there's going to be points in the next little while as we... Uh, move towards opening up where the heat's going to be on even more intensely as it has been how are you feeling uh, about the future and how are your colleagues feeling is there a sense of optimism is there a sense of foreboding is it a mix of both and and what do you think the next little while is going to be like for you and for nurses
3: It's uh, very hard at the moment to look into the future and to be very optimistic about anything at the moment and this is a sentiment that is shared with a lot of us who work in healthcare, whether you're a nurse, a midwife, a doctor or even the cleaners that work in healthcare. It just feels like this isn't going to end and the cracks are starting to show. Um, I know from my personal experience um, I'm going to work and I have a lot of anxiety about going to work but I know I've got a job to do, you know, Put on my scrubs one leg at a time and get on to get out there and do your work. Um, I think the best way to describe how a lot of us are feeling right now is that you are standing on the beach and there is a tsunami coming, and you are watching the water recede out. And you know that there is a tsunami coming, but all you can do is brace yourself for the impact. And that's what a lot of us are feeling right now. It's very difficult for us to look beyond October. There's a lot of talk about October being the worst month ever. And we're nervous, we're scared, we're stressed out. Um, I wish, I I suppose that, you know, the, the most, the thing that we are all looking forward to is everyone getting on with the job, getting vaccinated, and, uh, you know, eventually getting to a place where we have this virus under control. Um, we don't want people to be without their family. We don't want people to isolate themselves from their friends. We understand what the the psychological toll of that is. But at the same time too, you know, we, we need to do this, all of us together, so that, you know, we can look forward to a future where we can get back to everything we know and love again.
1: Stephen, thank you so much for spending some time and giving us uh, – uh, an intimate view of what life is like to be a nurse throughout this incredible time in our history. We wish you all the very best and uh, send our love and solidarity to all of your colleagues. We uh, couldn't be more appreciative of the work that you're doing, the bravery, commitment, um, the expertise and the calm with which you're bringing to the situation um, is going to make sure that we see a brighter day and uh, we'll never forget it, mate. Thank you so, so much.
3: No, thank you guys for having me on your show and keep up the good work, yeah?
1: Stephen Zorgis there, he's a nurse, a registered nurse who works in emergency departments in the southern and western suburbs of Sydney. On the Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Well, we talk with Stephen Zorgis there about nursing, the frontline experience of it. Shay Candish is the Assistant General Secretary of the New South Wales branch of the Australian Nurses and Midwives Federation and she is able to give us an overview of what the future looks like for nursing, how the system's going to cope as the uh, pandemic continues to rumble on, and what she thinks is the best way forward in a very difficult time. On The Job's a podcast all about your working life, and one thing that makes your working life better is being vaccinated. So to help inspire you to do that, you can go to shop.australianunions.org.au/slash collections, and everyone who is vaccinated can pick up a fantastic set of on-the-job union I'm Vaxed stickers to put on the back of your car, bike, scooter, whatever it is, to let people know that you're vaccinated and to encourage others to do the same. Go to shop.australianunions.org.au and use the code on-the-job in the store and make sure that you are vaccinated and share the news. Shay, welcome to on the job.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Firstly, how are you doing? How, as someone you know, involved deeply in the welfare of nurses and people on the front line of the pandemic in Western Sydney, where you know with the needle's tipping into the red, it must be very stressful. How are you going?
0: Yeah, I'm okay. I think it's tough. Within the head office of the Nurses and Midwives Association, we're all pretty busy. We're taking a lot of pretty tough calls, I think, from members who are really, you know, having some difficult times. So that puts our staff in a pretty difficult position sometimes. And the volume of calls that we're taking has increased by about 40%. So it's really, you know, everyone's putting their shoulder to the wheels and they're all doing that while they're managing their own issues with being, you know, in lockdown. So some of them have got issues relating to isolation or managing remote learning, all of the the, the challenges that we're all facing. So I think for me, it's it's a combination of all of those things and trying to make sure that the staff are okay and our members are okay and we're doing the best we can for everyone.
1: Can we do a bit of a health check then on the staff and those people that that are members of your union and are working in this really difficult time? 40% increase in calls. What sort of patterns or stories are emerging from that that that, that might alarm you and really cry out to be addressed?
0: Uh, We get lots of calls about access to PPE. Whether it's that, you know, we've got, um, supply issues or not the correct PPE being provided, uh, with the, the constant changes and the increasing volume of COVID positive patients, it presents lots of issues around PPE. An interpretation of what's in, what's appropriate PPE under what context. We also have issues with people who are being put into isolation because of exposures and the staff shortages that that creates, which has been pretty substantial. Uh, and then there's issues with uh, nurses and midwives being deployed across the hospital, either to keep them safe or to have them um, assisting in some of the you know m- the, what we would call hot areas, places where we have COVID positive patients. So all of those things are just some of what we're dealing with, but those are the real themes we're seeing a lot of, and it creates a real stress for those members.
1: There are real-world consequences of an increase in COVID numbers and there's still a, a strong section of the community, no, by no means the majority, but a strong minority, that argues that we need to open up and live with the virus as it stands without vaccination levels being significantly high in the 80% range. How do you manage to keep your emotions in check when you hear that with the disconnect between taking that sort of path and the consequences at the end? At the end of that chain where people get sick and present at hospital and it then is on healthcare professionals to try and hold back the tide of disaster, that would be, you know, a tsunami of infections.
0: Look, it's tough. Um, I think as a mum with two small kids, you know, and a daughter and a sister, like I think you... You can see why people want to get out, why they're so desperate to get out of lockdown. So I totally get that. Um, But as a healthcare worker, I think most people don't realise what will happen when we get to that point. I think the real challenge, you know, at the moment, um, I think there's about 11,000 COVID positive patients in Sydney that the health system is currently caring for that's only going to grow and that's 11,000 patients that the system wouldn't have had to cater for if we weren't in a pandemic. So that gives you some sense of the volume. Um, And, you know, some of them are okay, quite well, they're at home, but they still require some level of support And then you have the really sick ones, the people that are in ICU that are intubated. And I don't think that the public understand it's not just your standard kind of ICU patient either. These are people that are the sickest of the sick, you know, the level of intervention that's having to be undertaken for these people is some of the, you know, most critical intervention that we would do in ICU to have, you know, such high volumes of those people all at once is a real challenge.
1: In terms of the physical stress, just the physical stress of dealing with a patient who is uh, profoundly sick with COVID, preparing with PPE, having to turn people over so that they're able to breathe, all of that stuff that has to be done in order to facilitate the best care available, just how demanding is that? Can you give people an example of just what nurses are expected to do in that situation?
0: Look, it's incredibly demanding and some of it is really counterintuitive. So, you know, when you have someone who has a respiratory illness, you watch them really closely for what their breathing looks like. Um, But what we've found with COVID positive patients in ICU that are ventilated is that they're best ventilated on their stomach, so you actually can't watch them. So even doing the work that we would routinely do for a ventilated patient has all been turned on its head. Um, That in itself presents a whole lot of new challenges. The other thing is turning patients. Uh, Sometimes turning them is the most critical bit of work that we do because that small bit of movement is enough to destabilise them. So it can take seven or eight people to turn a patient um, so it's all hands on deck and those people, have those those nurses have to come from some of the other patients that they're looking after. So you're constantly managing all of those different challenges and that's not to mention the really complicated equipment. These people have got lots of lines, internal lines, where that we're monitoring and managing their fluids, their drugs. You know, some of them are having things like dialysis, ECMO, really complicated, um, interventional therapies. Uh, so it is a real challenge. And then of course you've got the PPE. So, you know, the nurses are doing somewhere between eight and 16 hour shifts routinely, uh, completely wrapped in plastic. Uh, And it's a really unpleasant experience. Uh, I think the nurses and midwives are grateful to have the PPE because it keeps them safe, but it's really unpleasant. The masks are starting to create some pressure areas on their face. They're really uncomfortable. You find yourself quite dehydrated because taking all of the PPE on and off uh, is a whole process in itself. And so you just forego a lot of the kind of quick sips of water that we would normally do through our day. Uh, So all of those things present real challenges um, and I think it just really, you know, opens up how difficult this work actually is. It's physically difficult um, but it's also emotionally difficult too. You know, the nurses are often the people who are nursing the patients but also the social supports. These people have no family, no visitors are allowed in. So the nurses are doing all of that caring and social support work for those patients as well.
1: Can we talk about the wellbeing of nurses then? It must be traumatising. I mean, it must be a situation where akin to a war zone where providing that sort of care with people in such distress leaves those workers with their own issues to deal with. Are you seeing people presenting with PTSD, post-traumatic stress uh, symptoms?
0: I suspect we will see it. I don't think we've seen it yet. We definitely hear from our members about some of the difficult days that they have, and I think that... Uh, The nursing profession itself is really good at pulling together, so I think we'll see lots of that, but it will all, I think, come together uh, and people will really experience some of the suffering once it's over.
1: Have some nurses, for instance, decided that they can't go back into an ICU environment because they feel like they've been burnt out by previous experience?
0: Uh, we see that normally, if I'm honest. Uh, I haven't heard any specific experiences of people saying they won't go in now. What, what I have seen, I guess, is nurses who have been upskilled to come and work in ICU or critical care. They did a small bout of it last year. Um, and some of them probably won't come, you know, we're hearing stories they won't come back for the pandemic this year, even though they'd put their hand up to say yes. And part of it is it's a really intense environment trying to get someone up to that level of expertise so quickly is really challenging and that really presents um, some individual difficulties for some people. So I'm not sure that everyone will go back. Yeah, I think the real the real trauma will come once it's all over, to be honest.
1: Can we talk a little bit about um, then what happens in the situation where nurses are furloughed? Because we'll see that uh, someone comes into hospital, nurses might inadvertently be exposed to, to an environment where COVID is present and the whole workforce has to step out of being able to provide care in order to uh, make sure that they are well and, and not sick. Uh, how much pressure is that putting on the system at the moment when people within the health system have to furlough And leaving, you know, the the volume of patients still coming through and not as many people there to look after them.
0: Yeah, look, it's putting a huge pressure on. It's not uncommon for us to have more than a thousand workers furloughed at once. Uh, And it's difficult when those outbreaks happen in smaller places where they can't access big volumes of staff. So particularly in our regional hospitals, you know, they don't have the ability to pull staff from other hospitals or call in agency staff. So those challenges make it even more difficult. But, you know, we see big hospitals, big metropolitan Sydney hospitals that have struggled to um, replace vacant shifts and members talk to us about, you know, coming on shift and they're two nurses short, things like that. So it's quite common for nurses and midwives to receive multiple text messages per day asking for them to come in and replace um, shifts or do overtime. That's really been the biggest focus in terms of um, managing those those furloughed staff.
1: Just on that also, I mean, it must be for other patients who are not COVID positive, who are presenting with other issues, that the stress being put on the system by the COVID uh, pandemic means that the standard of care that you can provide to someone with cardiovascular problems or dealing with oncology issues becomes even greater as well. So this is not just about COVID patients, is it?
0: No. And I think that's one of the real challenges because people will continue to present to emergency departments with the usual kind of illnesses that we see uh, and trying to give them the same level of care that we've always given is something that the nurses are really conscious of. Um, But you know, I heard a story just yesterday of someone saying they had a man who presented with chest pain and, every single room was taken up with a potentially COVID COVID positive patient. So there wasn't even a bed for them to do an ECG on that man on. So they had to do that in a chair. Now, you know, that's not the level of care that we want to be providing. When people come in with chest pain in a, you know, first world country, we should be able to do that.
1: Let's talk about Some positive stuff here. What we've seen through this pandemic is this ceaseless commitment to service from nurses and their commitment to excellence of care and and to the wellbeing of others. That must give you enormous pride.
0: Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I think it's something that, um, you know, really sets nurses and midwives apart from a lot of other professions and why we're so trusted by the community.
1: And in the end, do you think that we're going to learn something significant out of this that will change our approach to nursing?
0: Uh, I hope so. I certainly hope that we have a different approach to supporting and funding public health services. We've been calling for increases to nurse-to-patient nurse to, nurse to patient ratios for the last eight years. We've essentially been ignored, but it got to the point before this most recent outbreak that our members were taking industrial action, and that doesn't happen lightly. So I really hope that we will have the community behind us when all of this is over, because what the pandemic really has demonstrated is that our system was vulnerable to start with. Um, these cracks were already there frankly and we really need to invest in public health system uh, if we if we want good quality health services
1: and just to finish what would be your message to the wider public about the importance of getting a vaccination making sure that you do the right thing in terms of wearing a mask in public and what that actually means at the at the sharp end of this in hospitals for nurses for doctors for midwives
0: Yeah, look, I think that um, vaccinations are not perfect, but they're the one thing we've got to try and get uh, some kind of handle on this pandemic. It's so incredibly infectious and is so incredibly damaging for people that are unvaccinated when they end up in hospital. And the sheer volume, I think, is what we're struggling to manage. So, for every person that goes out and gets vaccinated and wears a mask, they're putting themselves in the best possible position to stay well and to stay out of hospital. Um, But they're doing a great service to their community because there is only so much that nurses and midwives can do. There's only so many beds in the hospital. uh, And despite all of the planning, uh, there will be limits to what we can do. So everyone that can stay out of the health system um, is one less person that we need to, to give care to. Um, So, yeah, everyone that can kind of go out, get vaccinated, wear a mask, socially distance, be responsible, follow those rules um, and help us get through this, I think will be, you know, very welcomed.
1: Shay, we are deeply indebted to you and your members for all the work that you do in order to make our community safe. And we wish you all the very best. We are, uh, you know, we're pulling for you, and we'll keep advocating on your behalf to make sure that you can provide the care that I know you take such great pride in delivering to Australians when they're most in need.
0: Thanks so much, Francis. I appreciate it.
1: Shay Candish, there, Assistant General Secretary of the Australian Nurses and Midwives Federation. On the job, Francis Leach and Sally Rock, how good was was chatting with Stephen? What an extraordinary advocate for his profession and um, you just know that if you end up in his hospital, you're going to be uh, getting the very, very best care.
2: Yeah, I, I liked when he was talking about how he's no Florence Nightingale and he, like, you've got to take your medication and <laughs> it reminded me of – so I um, quit smoking cigarettes a couple of years ago now, which I'm very proud of because I don't know – if many people know this, but cigarettes are um, extremely addictive and it's really difficult to quit um, <laughs> if you start. Not many people know this. Um, but, yeah, I, I wasn't, I didn't smoke very much. I probably had sort of two to four cigarettes a day Two, yeah. Um, but I found it really difficult for, to quit for a long time. But, you anyway, know, free of cigarettes now, yeah, I had a doctor who would never sugarcoat it, you know, she would just be like, you've got to quit, you've got to quit them, like enough, this is enough, Sally. And I'd be like, I'm sorry. And she's like, no, I don't want to hear that, you've got to quit. <laughs> it's like, it's like well on the record how bad these things are for you.
1: Sometimes you just need to be told really bluntly, don't you?
2: Yeah, yes, we do. <laughs> hey, um, I really loved um, hearing from both of our guests today and it kind of struck me how um, earlier in this week when, Uh, all those nurses from New South Wales wrote or signed onto that open letter sounding the alarm on the state of hospitals in in Western Sydney and New South Wales um, and appealing for help um, and sort of, yeah, sounding the alarm about their exhausted workforce. So I thought that was a really profound and powerful act of advocacy. And what I also loved about it was um, all the interviews I heard like on the radio and on television, <laughs> around it, were from nurses who were then like, "Oh, look. To be honest, like, we'll get through it. Like, yeah, it's really, really hard, but you know, we like, it's fine. We'll do like, we will do eighty-hour weeks. Like, we will do that, but we just want you to know that it, we're feeling really tired, anyway." And I just thought that was like such a iconic nurse approach to be like sounding the alarm that this is a crisis, but simultaneously reassuring us that they will work themselves to the bone to deliver the care for us. (laughs) Yeah, I just kind of really liked that portrait of nursing.
1: Yeah, resilience and commitment. Uh, And as you said, it isn't just heroes' work. It is incredibly important, highly skilled, uh, work that needs to be remunerated, celebrated, and protected, and that 's what joining your unions about, so go and do that if you come <laughs> Sally, um, we 'll let you get on with the rest of your Friday, and I want to thank you for being here, and we can follow you at Sally Rugg on the socials and I uh, hope your teeth's, uh, your cat 's teeth uh, settle nicely over the weekend it 's important yeah, to the, it- to the calm in the household that the cats choppers are fine
2: these cats. Uh, Like, I don't want to overstate how much these cats have got me through the last 18 months. Like, when people talk about their mental health plan, mine is the cats. (laughs) Like, that's (laughs) what it is at the moment. And, um, hey, I think I'm going to message my friend who's a vet and see if she wants to come and have a chat to us on the job.
1: Let's do that. We need to talk about how important pets are for us right now. Good on you, Sally. Enjoy the week ahead and we will catch you on the next edition of On The Job. See you then. Um